Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. A listener to the show questions my commitment to decentralization. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You already heard about that. Also, you can go to my webpage, click on the support tab, throw a few pennies my way, or go to YouTube. If you're watching there, click on the little super thanks button under the video. You can also go to Spotify for podcasters. You can become a subscriber there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Uh, give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. Also, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. And in fact, this is a listener-generated episode. Not only did this individual contact me through social media several times, but also he took the time to write a post on uh, his webpage about something I had said a few weeks back about secession. So I told him I would comment on it. And again, this is the best interaction we can have. You send me something and I comment directly on what you're, you're writing and it does make for a great show as well. So if you want to do that, you want to write about what I'm saying, you can do that too and then send me those and uh, I can perhaps uh, comment on it on a program. So let me let me start with a couple of things. As I'm recording this, uh, just recently, uh, Jason Whitlock, who for a long time, this is surprising to me, Jason Whitlock was a pretty mainstream sports uh, commentator, right? He was he had actually guest hosted the Jim Rome show, pardon the interruption, but he was a frequent guest host of the Jim Rome show. And Jim Rome, if you don't if you follow sports entertainment or sports media, is one of the biggest names in sports talk shows. Uh, he is, he's got a program out of Los Angeles. It is funny. Um, and look, Rome is, uh, is I think, pretty neutral, on, at least publicly, on things that he agrees with and disagrees with. Now, Whitlock hasn't been on that show in a long time because he started doing his own thing, but Whitlock actually worked at ESPN. Um, and so... He uh, was pretty mainstream, and as over time, it, come, it became apparent that Whitlock was rather conservative. In fact, Whitlock describes himself as a Christian nationalist. Now, we could talk about Christian nationalism and what that means and all the connotations with that, uh, but regardless, uh, Whitlock is pretty outspoken on his personal beliefs, and they're, they're based on his faith, and so he actually landed a... a a talk show, a podcast, but a show at The Blaze. And The Blaze has done a very good job with people having a, 
a platform who were pretty mainstream and then they've gone on the blaze and they have their own programs there. And in fact, Whitlock was just recently on the Tucker Carlson show, and it's a long-winded way of getting to this. And he said Americans need secession. He also has been on his own program talking about how Americans need secession. And, and most importantly, he says it because of his faith. He says, look, we've never been more divided. We have all of these social issues. The culture war, essentially, is what he's talking about. And we have people that can't even come to a common ground on simple things. So how are we going to come to a common, come to a common understanding or a common agreement on more complex things? And this is, this is a valid argument. I mean, it's what people are talking about. I'll, I'll give you an example. Several years ago, I think 2017 or 2018, but I think it was 17, I was at a, an Abbeville Institute conference, and this question was presented at the conference to, by the participants. And it was, you know, are we at a situation now where we're more divided than at any point in American history? And it's easy to say, no, we're not, because, you know, we had a war, in fact, in the 1860s. People were so divided that they shot each other. Or you could say, go back to the 1770s when we had Americans fighting on both sides of the American War for Independence. Pretty strong divisions in America at those points. But Don Livingston's comment was prescient, I think. He said in 2017, we're more divided now than ever. And this is before all the things that have happened now recently. But he said in 2017, we're more divided than ever. We have massive divisions in American culture. And the only way forward is some type of decentralization. Now, I agree with that 150%. There has to be some type of decentralization. Take, take it for what you will, whatever kind of decentralization you want to talk about. The easiest knee-jerk reaction is political secession. Now, I've said on this podcast many times that I'm not so certain Americans are 100% ready for that and that you would have a situation when you started getting down to what would happen should secession take place, people would really understand and that they would support it the way that it seems that they poll for that, right? And I've talked about polling data and how Americans are really shifting to that. And you might even say a majority of Americans are in favor of some kind of national divorce. Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments were in line with, well, I think we need a national divorce. We need more federalism, essentially, is what she's saying. We don't need to have states break off of the union. You do have some pretty prominent secession movements in places like Texas and even, uh, you know, uh, California. For a long time, there was Vermont. There's one in Alaska. Of course, you do have Southerners that are interested in this. You have people talking about this all over the place. And it's a nice conversation to have. But here is, and I'm going to give you today why I think this is too immediate and why we need more time with this. Not that there's not going to be some problems that could force the issue more quickly. But, and I've said this before, the real issue is going to be those who are against it, and I don't think we have enough people educated about secession and about how it is legal and about how it is workable and how it, how it could improve things. They're just going to say, well, that's illegal, that's treason, that's civil war. And if you want to see how that works, simply bring it up on social media and a left-wing enclave like Twitter and see what happens. It happens to me all the time. Anytime I bring this stuff up, the immediate thing is, why do you want civil war? We know it's treason. See? The problem is you don't have enough people educated about this, and you really don't have enough people that are independent enough to pull it off. In the 1770s and even in the 1860s, you had independent people 
really independent people who believed in the Anglo-American political traditions that made the United States unique in the world in its commitment to decentralization. This comes straight out of the Anglo-American political tradition. You go back to 1215 in the Magna Carta. You go to the English Bill of Rights. You go to, of course, the American War for Independence. There is a line of political thought and culture in America that leads to this. Okay, self-determination, consent of the governed, these kind of things. This is straight out of the Anglo-American political tradition. There's no other people in the world that have this. The way that it developed on the British Isles and then, of course, was transplanted to the British North American colonies. There's nowhere else. You can even look at Canada, which, of course, held on to the empire longer and that strain of federalism that's even in Canada that they have there. Now, Australia is different. Uh, we, I know I do have some, some fans in Australia, so I'm mentioning you. Hey, Australia. Uh, Australia's a little different, and um, it's, it's a little more centralized than what you would have in, uh, in say, Canada or in, in, in North America, in the United States or Canada. But certainly, there still is this Anglo tradition in Australia that is uh, different from other parts of the world. I mean, it's just, it's true. So, Americans held on to this in the United States, when I say Americans, in the United States, held on to this longer than anyone else, and Southerners longer than anybody in the United States. So that Anglo-American political tradition is important. It's a political culture. And when you start looking at local government and decentralization, federalism, all these things come out of that. So I think that that needs to be nourished in a way that we don't see anymore. And when I say that there's a turning point in America, it really is the 1860s and the Lincolnian myth, right? It's not Abraham Lincoln. When I say things like Lincolnian America, you get these dopes on social media who say, yeah, Abraham Lincoln did this. Uh, I'm sure he did all this. When I, it's because they're so stupid, they don't really understand what I'm saying. They're, they're, they're midwits. But the fact is, Lincoln was a turning point, not because of Lincoln himself, and what Lincoln did, but it's what the myth of Abraham Lincoln did. Now, Lincoln did shred the Constitution. Lincoln acted in a way that um, was completely alien to how the founding generation wanted the presidency to be used. You could make a case that Lincoln himself and the boys in blue committed treason, if you define it the way you do in the U.S. Constitution. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can say about that. But it was the Lincoln myth that became much more powerful than Lincoln himself. And the messianic worship of Abraham Lincoln after the war is really the issue in America. You get that in the, in the Pledge of Allegiance, which, of course, I've talked about on this show. One nation indivisible, right? I mean, that's the Lincoln myth. That's Lincolnian America. That's what that pledge is. It's Lincolnian America. So the idea that we have a centralized regime, a government where the states really are uh, subordinate to the center, where the states are simply corporate entities of the center, and that's what we're talking about. The states become mere corporate entities of the center, which is what uh, this attack on federalism does. It's what Alexander Hamilton said in the Philadelphia Convention when he was knocked down. He said, look, the states uh, need to become, and I'm paraphrasing, corporations, corporate entities of the center. And uh, he was called out for this in the New York Ratifying Convention by John Lansing. And 
that debate, it's one of my favorite episodes in the ratification process because in Elliott's debates, uh, there is a line that the recorder of the New York Ratifying Convention said there was a warm debate between the two men. This almost led to a duel. Lansing called Hamilton a liar. Hamilton didn't appreciate it. Hamilton called on Yates, who had attended the convention, to bring out his notes, which he produced. And he said, well, yeah, Hamilton said these things, but I think he didn't mean it the way that you're saying it, Lansing, when in fact, in reality, he did mean it the way Lansing was pointing it out. Lansing was trying to call Hamilton to the carpet because Hamilton was a nationalist. He did think the states need to be reduced to a corporate capacity. He was trying to force a national government on the United States. Now, of course, that position lost in the ratification process because Hamilton swore up and down he didn't mean that. The states were still essential. The states weren't corporate entities. The states were the building blocks of the Federal Republic. He said all these things. He called it a confederated system. This is what this is the language Hamilton used in the ratification process. Even his nationalist arguments and Federalists, which, by the way, nobody knew 100% that Hamilton was writing those. You see, Hamilton can play both sides. He could be a little more nationalist in the Federalist essays and then go to the, to the New York Ratifying Convention in Poughkeepsie and not be as nationalist. This is something you could do. But regardless, we get this position of bottom-up federalism, building the United States from the bottom up. But Lincoln changed that. Lincoln, the Lincoln myth changed it. And this is why you have a lot of leftist historians now talking about the 1868 Constitution. There is the 1788 Constitution, and there's the 1868 Constitution. I remember years ago, I used that language in a tweet somewhere, and people were, well, there's no, there's no two constitutions. We have the 1788 Constitution. No, we don't. And lefties will tell you, no, we don't really have that anymore. We have the 1868 Constitution. Even people like Randy Barnett, who is supposedly on the right, will say things like the 1868 Constitution. The 14th Amendment changes, at least in their mind, everything. It nationalizes everything in America. Now, if that was the proper interpretation of the amendment, there's really nothing anybody could say about it. Of course, we know with Raoul Berger, there is a lot of room for debate in that. But this is where legal scholars are going. It's Eric Foner has said this. There's uh, Noah Feldman. Um, the, this is what people are doing. There's Kermit Roosevelt, which I talked about yesterday. I mean, that 1868 model, we have a change. We get a centralized regime. We have a, we have a break from the original Constitution, and we go to the 1868 Constitution. And that's Abraham Lincoln. So we subordinate the states. The states become uh, less important. The states are really emasculated, now, at least in theory. Now, not really. The powers still exist. In fact, even in, and this is, this is an interesting point, uh, some conservatives, as I talked about on this program recently, would even say things like, well, um, the, the Texas v. White decision actually still agreed we have indestructible states. We still have states. They still have powers. They can still do things. And you did have Republican jurists, the slaughterhouse cases. You still have Republican jurists forcing a Federalist model. But the popular public perception of what we were doing, a national government. Everything comes from the center. Everybody pays more attention to the presidential elections. Everyone pays more attention to the, to the congressional elections. People start ignoring local politics. In the progressive era, what happens? And the Republicans are certainly part of the sweeping movement to get us to the progressive era. The progressives would not have gotten into power without 
a Republican named Teddy Roosevelt, right? So we did have progressives. Progressivism was thought to be dead, in fact, in the 1890s with William McKinley. People really thought they killed it, and they put Teddy Roosevelt uh, on the ticket as vice president because they thought by doing that, they would definitely kill progressivism. But what they didn't realize is progressivism really was a grassroots thing. It didn't wasn't top down. It was coming from the bottom up. And progressives were highly suspicious of local politics and local government. And they thought that all these things, you know, local political parties, all that needed to be supplanted by the center because the center was going to be more pure. You could eliminate corruption from the center. This is why they did all the little progressives reforms that they did in the states. The idea was to eliminate this kind of corruption at the at the local and state level. And if you talk to a progressive today, they're going to complain about the nepotism, the corruption, all these things at the local and state level, which by the way are much more rampant at the center than they are at the state and local level. I've talked about it on the show years ago. Go back if you haven't done it and get some of my older podcasts. Because I cover a lot of this stuff that people question me about now in some of these older episodes. This is this we've done over I've done over eight hundred of these things, and uh, there was an episode years ago which actually YouTube blocked because of the title that I used, and it was a pretty hot topic at the time. There was an Alabama governor, Governor Bentley, who was doing all kinds of nefarious things, and he eventually was removed from office because of it. Not I mean he was gone, um, and. That's local politics at work. Can you do that to the presidency? We've tried. You can impeach them. But a president will never be removed from office. Now, I mentioned on this show that I don't think the Republicans will ever have the guts to impeach Joe Biden. They've, they have an opportunity right now. They can impeach him right now. Right now, they can impeach Joe Biden. Maybe I think that they might save it. And, and I'm going to predict something here. They're going to save impeachment uh, for his election year, which would be you know next year. I think that all the investigations that they're doing right now, they're trying to do things, is going to lead to a situation where they're going to try to impeach Joe Biden in 2024, or they make a case they campaign on impeachment in 2024. If you reelect him, we're going to impeach him um, because we're going to bring in all this corruption. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but the Republicans are always spineless. The Democrats, though, will pull this stuff off. They'll impeach people. Uh, the Republicans, of course, did it with Bill Clinton, and it they think it backfired spectacularly on them. So I'm not so certain they're certain they're going to follow through with that again. But the Democrats did it. But my point is, even if you're a Democrat and you hated Donald Trump, impeaching doesn't get rid of the guy. You're never going to get rid of the presidency or the president, but you can remove governors. We've seen it several times. We've seen recall. Now, that is a progressive move, right? Recall is something that came out of the progressive movement. Uh, they were trying to, to have mechanisms you could clean up corruption in the states. So in that way, some of these things were beneficial. Yeah, I agree. To be able to get rid of people who are corrupt and get rid of corruption, root that out at the state level, it's a good idea. But the fact is the states are, are easier to do this than anybody in the center. Anyone. Imagine Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being defeated in, in a re-election bid. It's not going to happen anytime soon. She's entrenched now in her district in New York City. She's entrenched. And so she's going to be there in Congress as long as she wants to be there. I think, and and not too far down the road, you're going to see Cortez run for Senate. I think that's going to happen. And she'll 
I, I think that you could probably win a Senate seat in New York. Um, and I think that you'll probably see Cortez at some point in the future run for president of the United States. That's going to happen too. She's too young right now, but I think that's going to happen at some point in the future. She is a political hog in the way that all she wants to do, it's, it's image with Cortez. It's all image. Um, and so she is that political Puritan. She is a camera hog. She is that kind of thing. So that's going to happen. Media attention. So you get this shift, though, in looking at everybody goes to the center. I commented on this on, on social media. There was a, a someone that I follow there, and he said, you know, look, I've got all these Trump supporters and everybody. But she said, come on out to a county, county commission meeting or a school board meeting, and they all just say, I've got something else to do. They all focus on the center because that's what they've been told is most important. You know, God bless the USA and, uh, you know, Lee Greenwood and wrap the U.S. flag around you. And so vote and go to a Donald Trump rally, but forget about your school boards and your county commission and all these things. Why? Because the center is more important. If we can just put Donald Trump in office, it's just going to solve all the problems. We're not going to have any problems at the state anymore when in reality, all the things that you're complaining about could easily be handled at the state and local level. So I've said all that to get to this piece. That the uh, that this individual wrote. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, the it's at, published at LibertyBlock.com, and the title is "It's Time to Think Outside the Box on Secession." This was published in uh, on April 3rd, uh, so not too long ago. And I'm going to go to the part where he's critical of what I've said about some things. Uh, he says, "For many who have advocated or written about secession in years past, this necessary this necessary transition in perspective is proving difficult." Renowned Southern scholar Brian McClanahan is one of the leading voices arguing that secession was not illegal in the eyes of the Founding Fathers and is designed to be an effective check on tyranny. A month before Green's comments, however, McClanahan published a blog post and podcast episode on his website where he made statements regarding secession in the Union today which were discouraging and confusing to many secession advocates. McClanahan was responding to an article denigrating modern secession movements in the United States which appeared in National Review written by Hillsdale College professor Miles Smith. McClanahan conceded in his response to Smith that the time was not right for secession, citing his belief that the American people were not ready for it. He raised the specter of Texas v. White, citing it as a reason it would never happen except as a power reserved to Congress where Congress could expel a state. Uh, well, first of all, I didn't say it would never happen. I've never said it would never happen. That's misinterpreting what I said. But anyways, he further proposed that successful secession could only come from the left. Well, I would say that's probably true. Um, and and I, I will stand on that because anytime the right tries to pull it off, you are going to have some pretty fierce resistance from the center because it's going to be done in their mind because of race, class, gender, something else. It's going to be some nefarious reason that the right's trying to, to leave the union. And these people are psychopaths. Again, just look at what people say on social media. I know not, social media is not America. But social, the, the way that you look at social media, it's like a poll, right? These people are the most vocal on social places like Twitter. They're the most vocal, uh, you know, vocal lefties, the most vocal mentally insane people. But they represent a large subject, large group of population that does think that way. And same thing with conservatives. I pointed out in the essay, the, the little blog post that I talked about, where Bill Bennett has said if just one person, he's a conservative, if just one person is a seating state, wanted to stay in the Union, they would send in the tanks. Karl Rove. Karl Rove. George W. Bush, quote-unquote, conservative advisor, Karl Rove, calls Confederates the enemy. They're the enemy. 
You've got Republicans in Texas that call secession treason. And this is where you have a pretty strong independence movement in Texas. They call it treason. What do you think these people are going to do? Should a referendum be put in place in Texas where the people of Texas can actually vote on having a, con a convention, which is the way you need to do it for Texas to leave the union, and they lose? What do you th and, and the pro the pro United States people lose? What do you think they're going to do? They're immediately going to go to the central government and say, "This is treason. You need to send in the tanks." That's what's going to happen. This is the Lincolnian problem in America. This is why I say people are not ready for this yet. That's my point. So, what we have, and then there's a whole bunch of other things he says here. He says that I'm pessimistic. I'm not pessimistic about, the, about it taking place at some point in the future. I've never said it can happen. I've said Texas v. White really is the vehicle to do it if you want to do it right now because it removes any of those constitutional objections. All you got to do is say, hey, red states, we don't want the blue state in. You're out. You could, get, you could get blue states to do it too. You could get a collection of blue states. The problem is that blue states are the minority. So the red states, they, they just don't have the power to do it. The red states could band together and do it. They could have a vote of Congress. If the, if the Republicans could actually run decent candidates, they could have a, a, a block in Congress that would certainly uh, push a state out. They could get California out of the union. They're not going to do it, though. And they're not going to do it, as I've said before, because of money. Because there is uh, all of these economic ties, and they don't want to lose the revenue. They don't want to lose it. right? It comes down to that. So it's going to have to come from the state level. It's going to have to come from the bottom up, and you're going to have to have people in the United States, the majority of the people, not think this is treason. This is why it has to be a long process. And yes, people have to talk about it. And yes, people have to say it's not treason. And yes, people have to point out the founding generation didn't think this was illegal. They could say it's unwise, but they didn't think it was illegal. And if you have the people of the states, this is where you have to break that one people mindset and you've got just too much on the other side right now that believe that we have one people, one nation indivisible, all this nonsense that I talk about, this Lincolnian nationalist myth, you have to break that through education. Now, how do you do that is the question. Well, you, you talk about it. You talk about the founding generation didn't think secession was illegal. You give them quotes. You try, you, you try to educate people. And then... Those people, and this is my job, right? My job is just to talk about it. I'm not a political activist at all. I'm telling you what's happening, what, what the founding generation said about history and what they said about uh, you know, legal issues like secession. We know they thought it was legal because New England was agitating as early as 1794. We know with Washington's farewell address, there was certainly secessionist sentiment in the United States at that point. And he's trying to... to clamp that down with his farewell address. We know it was already there. We know it was there in 1800 when Jefferson is elected. We know it's there in 1801. We know it's there in 1804. We know it's there in 1815. We know it's there constantly. We know it's there uh, th during the embargo. The Essex Junto in New England was really pushing it. We know then it moved south. It started moving south. We also know abolitionists were in favor of secession. So we've got all these different examples of secession. It's why, by the way, you should get my reading secession class at McLeanahan Academy or secession. I've still got it on sale. I've got, if you're on my email list, you're going to get those coupons to get it on sale. You want to pick up these classes. But this is the point, right? We need more education. And it's great that 
this listener, I don't know his real name. He publishes as Professor Wall. I don't know if Wall is really his last name or, or what. Um, he probably publishing under a pseudonym. But regardless, I love the fact that this individual listens to the show and is talking about this. And if you're discouraged by what I'm saying, don't be. Uh, I'm just telling you. You have it's it's okay if you if you live in a world where you think this has to be immediate and you got to do it right now. This isn't an immediate thing. Now, what he says next is exactly what I've been saying. He says my view is outdated, but what is the what is the theme of this show? Think locally, act locally. It's been the theme of the show now since I started the podcast uh, seven years ago, right? It's been the theme of the show really from the beginning. I think I started using it. Um, you know, maybe uh, uh, 20 or so episodes in. I can't remember when I started using that theme. But I did start talking about that. And of course, federalism's always been there. In fact, one of the earliest episodes, I think episode number one is, uh, or, or in that time, is Donald Trump and federalism. I've talked about federalism from the beginning. But what he says uh, is interesting. He says, this view of secession, my view, is outdated. Accelerating economic collapse, which... I think that would push immediate secession more than anything else. If people are looking at a situation where they are, uh, you know, having to uh, use wheelbarrows full of cash just to buy a dozen eggs, you would see some real problems. However, we do know throughout history and historical examples, when that stuff generally happens, you get people from pushing for more centralization, not less. Um, and that's what I think you would see more than secession. There would have to be some kind of uh, you know, person riding on the white horse and saving the day at the center. I think you would see more of that than secession. However, maybe that pushes people into secession. I don't know. Spurred by an inter uh, international elite class becoming completely detached from reality has created a situation right for ordinary people to take matters into their own hands. Well, I agree, right? That's think locally, act locally. I mean, that's the whole point of the show. I haven't said that these things aren't important. I have been thinking outside the box. I guess that uh, Professor Wall hasn't really paid attention to what I've been saying. Uh, he says, parents have started taking over local school boards in spite of the federal government harassment and opposition. That's great. I've advocated people do that. Many individuals have chosen to opt out of tyranny by seeking a better life in freer states, leading to a mass exodus from tyrannical hotbeds such as California and New York. Hey, who else has been saying to do that? Yours truly. Many who are unable to move are engaging in grassroots efforts to initiate border changes in places such as Oregon, Illinois, California. Um... Who's talked about that? Oh, yeah, me. <laughs> that That's a good idea. That, hey, do that, right? What he's advocating here is actually federalism, federal responses within the structure of the union. He's not, he, he's advocating. So you could say that what I've been doing the whole time on the show is advocating secession. I've told you to do these things, right? Get involved and start making your voice heard at the state and local level, like, I don't know, think locally, act locally. So he's not really disputing what I've said. What I've talked about is, is this idea that we have state secession, people are ready for that 100%. I don't think in your even in your states where you have strong movements, people are ready for that 100% in those states. You're not going to get it through until you have people that decide that they're more independent and that local government is the way. That's the only way this is going to happen. In the 1860s, you had people that believed this. You had people, the majority of the people of the states in the South believed it. They believed it. 
You don't have that situation in the United States now. You have too much Lincolnian nationalism. Conservatives are too Lincolnian nationalist. Now, Michael Anton can try to write a little story where he goes through mental contortions, and I've, I've talked about that on the show, trying to justify secession through a Lincolnian position. And what he's doing there, and I understand why he's doing it. I mentioned it. Because the same thing with Harry Jaffa and equality of, as conservative. What he's trying to do there is say, even Abraham Lincoln supported secession. See? It's ridiculously stupid. But it's, well, we got to use Lincoln. It's trying to work within the framework. Hey, equality is conservative. All these people calling us you know, racist and other things, they're actually the ones that don't understand American history because equality is conservative. It's, it's trying to take the sting politically from the other side. It's not going to work. you got to work outside of that framework. And so that's what I've done the whole time on this show. Most importantly, nullification is, be, is beginning to become a, com, a common theme among local jurisdictions, such as counties, in response to growing efforts to restrict gun ownership, free speech, and various other rights. But to see, the thing is, those are all f- responses within the framework of the union. And I'm look, that's if you get more people thinking like that, then eventually you could have a state secession movement because you would have to have people say, well, you know, all these things aren't working, and so we got to get out. Now, someone like Nathaniel Macon would say that these things are all stupid. Just leave the union. Right? I mean, he was saying that in North Carolina in, <laughs> in uh, the early 19th century. Uh, he's saying, look, nullification is a dumb idea. Just leave the union. It's, it, you, just leave, right, if you don't really want to be part of it. So, I mean, you could take that position. But again, even in the 1830s, people, people didn't want to do it. They weren't ready for that. You know, very small minority. It wasn't until you get to the 1860s and people had talked about it for a number of years, right? It took time that you actually saw people say, you know, we can do this. Now, the response, of course, was violence. You're going to have to persuade a large percentage of the population that violence is not the answer in that case, that it doesn't doesn't need to have a violent response. This takes education. I'm telling you, when I say Americans aren't ready, I'm looking at the big picture and what would actually happen. Americans aren't ready. Now, he says, for those who advocate for secession, it's, it is now time to embrace secession optimistically and with vigor. This is, his, this is his problem. He doesn't think I do it enough. I'm doing it the whole time. What he says is secession? I've been doing that the whole time. How have I not been doing this with vigor? I think that we need to change minds through education and actually say, okay, uh, these things, we're more independent people, we're taking control of our local governments, we're taking control of our county governments, we're taking control of our state government. By the way, we need to talk about conventions, not state legislatures doing this. Conventions, the voice of the people, that's why the South actually called conventions in 1860 and 61, because you needed to have a voice of the people. Uh, and I'll give you an example. In Delaware, when there was some talk of secession, one of the leading proponents of it in the state, at least privately, James Byard, said, look, the legislature is not called at this time uh, to deal with this crisis. We need a convention. We need a convention. But no one ever called one. So the legislature wasn't going to take the state out of the union, but a convention of the people could have done it. And that's the important thing to understand. They In, in the 1860s, people understood conventions. You say, we need a convention now, and people would think, oh, like for, for uh, you know comic books, uh, for, uh, for you know, movies, for baseball cards, what do we need? We need that kind of convention? Yeah, let's have a convention. We need an antique convention. We have a convention. Uh, I mean, uh, oh, you mean like uh, we're going to nominate a party? That kind of convention? They don't even understand what a convention is. It's the voice of the people. Because, see, we've lost Lincolnian, the Lincolnian myth 
has bulldozed all the stuff. So we are starting at ground zero, essentially. Really, it started in the 1990s. We've started at ground zero. And the fact that more people are talking about it today is amazing than it ever before. This is what I've said on this show. And this is why I do the show, because think locally, act locally really is a type of secession. As Professor Wall accurately states, that's the whole point of the show. So um, if you think I'm not committed to this, I need to be out regarding it. I need to be up front. More secession, more secession. And look, I'm all for people talking about it. Uh, bigger names talking about it. People that uh, have a larger platform than I do. Great. Let's have the conversation. Let's talk about these things. Let's talk about you know outside the box, which is what I've been doing since 2016, on these issues of decentralization, federalism. It's, you know, it's the 10th Amendment Center. Um, when I say people aren't ready for it, though, I'm putting my finger on the pulse of what this would really mean. And uh, knowing what the other side would do, we need, a, we need a much more substantial change in perception and education in America. We need to destroy the Lincoln myth before you're ever going to see a peaceful secession movement take place that would be um, something that wouldn't cause all kinds of disruption. You would need to have you know, uh, some kind of... People would believe there has to be an umpire. There has to be some negotiation. All this stuff. All this would have to be worked out. Because this is the perception that you have on the other side. And if they don't think it's right, what you're going to see is a real bad reaction. Now, I'll never forget, and I'm going to cl conclude with this, Thomas Naylor, who was uh, president of the Second Vermont Republic Secession Movement. He's now deceased. But I remember I listened to him give a talk. It was 2010, 13 years ago. And he gave a talk, and he said on this topic, I mean, look, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time, just not in this podcast form, but I've been interested in this topic for a long time, for even before 2010. He gave a talk and he said, look, um, what we need to do, I mean, if Vermont can pull this off. Now, Vermont, Vermont, he was a leftist, by the way. Thomas Naylor was on the left. He said, Vermont can pull this off. What we're going to do is pull at the drawbridge and hope they don't send in the tanks. He understood even in 2010 that the reaction to this, even in a leftist state like Vermont, would be difficult, to say the least. And he, I think, was worried about it. The education level in 2010 was lower than it is now on the topic of secession. But uh, we've made progress in that, that more people think, yeah, I mean, maybe we need to think about this. When Jason Whitlock gets on a big voice and says, hey, you know, maybe it's time. Maybe it really is time for uh, some type of discussion on independence. Maybe it's time for that. Uh, at that point, he's on the Glenn, Bre Glenn Beck uh, television network. Maybe Glenn Beck starts to say these things. I can guarantee you someone who won't, that's Sean Hannity. I can guarantee you just about every mainstream conservative won't. Beck might be the only one that would, but I can guarantee you many of these people won't. And the reason comes down to Abraham Lincoln. That's the reason. So until we can destroy the Lincolnian myth, that's when I said people aren't ready for this. And there are some other things that are serious issues, you know, economic issues and other things. I'm not saying it, it can't happen, and I'm not, I'm not trying to poo-poo anybody out there who goes and says, you know, we need to have some talk about political decentralization, independence. Great, do it. Have the conversation. I think that it needs to come from the bottom up, from the states, Texas, these kind of movements. That's great stuff. Go out and talk about it. Go out and do it. But we do need independent people, and so the education part is what I'm doing. So take that for what you will. I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show.